to Creepy Crime Podcast, a podcast where two friends talk creepy crimes to each other. I'm Allie. And I'm Creighton. And this week we have some exciting stories for all of you true crime fans out there that we're excited to share with you. I'm excited about mine. I'm, I can't remember what you just said yours was. Mine is actually a local hometown murder here from my home city, Alexander City. That's exciting. Okay, do you want to start then? You know, I don't mind going first. Okay, I'm excited. Alright, so, my... Wait, 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 is any of your family part of this story? No, but I know some of the families involved in it, and my parents are actually the one who told me about the story because they were children when it was happening. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, continue. Alright, so, our story is about the Reverend William Maxwell, who is from... Alexander City, Alabama. So, our story actually starts on August the 6th, 1971. And it was in our local paper, the Alexander City Outlook. Is that still a, like, living paper? Oh yeah, that's still the local paper to this day. In fact, you can even go back and find the records. If you look online at the Alexander City Outlook, you can find the articles I'm talking about. Really? That's awesome. Most of them don't keep it that up to date. That's cool. Yep. And so, our story starts on this August 6th newspaper with the death of a woman named Mary Lou Maxwell, a black woman who had been found dead in her 1968 Ford, which had appeared to have struck a tree on Highway 22 near the Hillaby Bridge, which is that bridge right down from my house. From the new house or the old house? The one that connects from New Site into Alex City, where you're going through the hills and the curves. Oh, where I always lose service. Yeah, right there. So, the accident had been reported by Maxwell's uh, unnamed husband at 2.45 a.m. County and state authorities were investigating, and the man who alerted the police to the accident on that early morning turned out to be William Maxwell, a pup water who called uh, the Coosa County community of Nixburg home. But he spent his Sunday... Wait, a what? Huh? A what owner? He was a pup wooder. What's that? Uh, those are people who go out and cut down um, large black pine trees and all and make pulp wood out of it. Oh, a, okay. I thought you said a pup cutter. And I was like, the heck is a pup cutter? Okay, continue. <laughs> It's a sadist, and it's a horrible thing. Don't let your puppies listen to this. Uh. Basically, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh my god. And then, yeah, at first I thought you said pub owner, and then I heard pup cutter. I was so confused. (laughs) No. So, he is a pulp wooder, but he was also a preacher. Wait, which was his primary job? Well, most preachers in the South have a week job, and then they have a, like, the preacher on Sunday when you're a traveling preacher and so I'm guessing the pulp wooder would have been his normal job okay right and then he probably only preached on Sundays and special events so people around town can remember seeing this handsome preacher overseeing his pulp wooden crews while wearing a suit so he was always said to be in a suit But there was a lot of strange things about William Maxwell. Yeah, like why would you be cutting wood in a suit? 
Well, he was he was more of a manager than he was an actual worker. So people in the community around here actually became frightened of this man in the suit. Like there's a quote from a man who said that the people over there in the projects on the north side, my mom lives there, they would be out on their porches enjoying the afternoon and Will would ride through the projects and they'd get inside their houses real quick and lock the doors and close the windows. And that's the truth. End of the quote. So, there was a lot of rumors spread about Maxwell. So, did they just not want to talk to the preacher, or were they afraid of him? No, um, so there was a lot of rumors about him, and one of the most common rumors about him was that he dabbled in voodoo. And it's even said that he was connected to the seven, uh, the seven sisters of Algiers or the Seven Sisters of New Orleans, whatever you know them as. Today, they're nothing more than like a brand that sells mystic oils and other potions and things over the internet. But back in the like early part of the 20th century, they were said to be powerful hoodoo women who operated in, in the New Orleans like around the 1920s. And the sisters were known for their psychic abilities or clairvoyance. In fact, the sisters were alleged to have the power to look at a person and to be able to read that person's mind or read that person's future. So, William Maxwell was charged with the murder in the death of his wife, Mary Lou. And he hired the former state senator and gifted attorney, Tom Radney, of Alexander City to defend him. And Radney still has like a law office right downtown. So, the star witness... Wait, how old is he? Uh, I actually don't know how old he is. But I know that some of the other uh, people that we'll mention later in the show, who were lawyers at the time, are now judges. Wow. Okay. Continue. Because they were young lawyers. So, the star witness in the trial was Maxwell's neighbor, Dorcas Anderson who provided the preacher with an alibi that led to his acquittal and to a collection of $90,000 in insurance money. It wasn't long after Maxwell's acquittal in the death of Mary Lou that his brother, Columbus, was found dead beside the road near Nixburg, the apparent victim of alcohol poisoning. So, there was a lot of rumors that went around about his brother's death. And a lot of people were saying that Maxwell himself had forced his brother to drink a mixture of whiskey and embalming fluid. But none of that could be proven. So no, so no one knew if he actually killed his brother or if that's just local rumor. But at that point, everyone believes it. So, like, he might as well have done it. Right. And the main person who was quoted in uh, the article that I was reading, his name is Burns. And he plays an important part in the story later. Some may say, like, one of the most important parts. But, three years after the death of his brother, Maxwell's second wife, Dorcas, which is the same woman who had provided his alibi in the death of his first wife, was found dead in her car. So now, there's three people either found dead in their cars or by the roadside. And two of them had been married to him at some point. Yeah, and one of them was his brother. And he got insurance money from all three deaths. So, 
Dorcas's husband had died shortly after Mary Lou Maxwell, and it made it freed up Dorcas to marry William. So, a lot of people said that not only had uh, Maxwell killed Dorcas, but he had originally killed her husband by feeding him embalming fluid in his whiskey. Oh, shit. Oh, so this is, like, a common occurrence. Right, and, like, the worst part is that Dorcas's husband, before he died, he got sick and was in a wheelchair, and she had to take care of him. And it's said that uh, William Maxwell killed that man and then married Dorcas, and then he killed Dorcas. Because he just wanted the money. Right. Now, the official cause of Dorcas's death was determined to be acute asthmatic bronchitis. Although her uh, autopsy noted a deep laceration on her forehead, since the death was not ruled a, mar a murder, Maxwell again collected on an insurance policy uh, $50,000. So basically, if you're ever killed, say, by someone... It needs to happen during your bronchitis season so that we can just blame it on your bronchitis. I guess so, because they were sure getting away with it. So, Tom... Right, and so Tom Radney was helping Maxwell collect a lot of insurance money because that was his own retainer lawyer. And a lot of folks around Elk City started calling Radney's new law offices the Maxwell House because of his connections to William Maxwell. Did he drink Maxwell House coffee? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I like how that's what made you laugh. Not anything else, just that one. Well, I, <laughs> it was a good joke, and it caught me off guard. I don't know why I should have expected it. So, in February of 1976, now mind you, that's six years after the original death of his wife. Well, of his first wife. How many years after the second? Two years after his second wife. Oh, so like, he was pretty quick in killing him. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So, a friend of Mr. Burns, the person who's mainly quoted in this story, and a nephew of William Maxwell, James Hicks, was found dead. Do you want to guess where? In his car. Yep, in a single car accident. There was no apparent trauma and little damage I was expecting with a whiskey bottle in hand. Nope. But there was no apparent trauma this time, so no lacerations in the forehead, nothing like that. And there was little damage to the vehicle. And it came to rest in a stand of very small tree, which was very reminiscent of Mary Lou Maxwell's 1968 Ford incident, his first wife. So, hmm. James was William Maxwell's sister's son, and he used to work for William out at the pulp wooding. And rumors began to circulate that William had killed him too. But, once again, there were no charges brought against Maxwell in Hicks' death. So, mind you... What would be the reasoning for William killing him? I don't know. Like, nobody's quite sure, and that's what makes this so mysterious, because you don't know if some of these were actual accidents or if they actually were caused by people killing each other. I don't know. If more than one of your wives dies, I think you did it. Right. Now, I don't think he collected any insurance money off of this one. So maybe his nephew knew something that he shouldn't. 
Yeah, maybe they just knew too much. Right, but this time, Maxwell wasn't charged in his nephew's death. So, um, that makes three deaths that are suspected, no, four deaths that are suspected of William Maxwell, but only one death, which was his first wife, has he actually had to defend himself against. The next death made Maxwell pretty much famous for what happened next. It was a woman named Shirley Ann Ellington, and she was just 16. She was found dead underneath her car on July the 11th, which is my birthday, 1977, which is not my birth year. Yeah, you're not that old. Yeah, no, I was born much later. My mother was born in 77. Wait a second, was he married to her? No, she was just 16. She was um, William Maxwell's stepdaughter. By which wife? Um, he had married again. After Dorcas. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, the man who's been giving this account to most of them, whose name is Burns, hmm, he was the uncle of this girl, uh, Shirley Ann Ellington. In fact, she was the daughter of his brother's ex-wife. So, the adopted niece of his. It is said when he was being asked, he said that his cousin, who is Amos Hearn, was driving through where uh, Shirley's car was found and that he saw the preacher putting her under the car and kicking the jack out from under the car like she was trying to change a flat tire or something and the car came down and killed her. But she was already dead when she was put under the car. And Amos stopped to ask if he needed any help. And William, the preacher, supposedly told him, Hell no, and if you tell anyone, I'll kill you. So this actually hit Burns, the speaker, who is still alive today, right in the heart. Because this was his adopted niece. Okay, my question. At this point, how big was his congregation? Because, I mean, this guy is accused of multiple murders. And he's still a preacher? Well... Here's the thing. He may not have still been a preacher at the time, but when people hear about a murderous preacher, whether he's still preaching or not, people talk about it. Okay. So, I couldn't find anyone, like, anything that says that he was or wasn't still preaching at this time. Of course, it was decided that they were going to uh, have a funeral that week for Shirley. Burns heard about this because he was a trucker and he was out in Ohio. He came back immediately uh, back home with his truck. During the funeral, it was actually Maxwell who had escorted his wife, which was the young girl's mother, up into the church. Well, Burns couldn't believe that the preacher was sitting right behind him. So, after the funeral, as everybody was starting to leave, Burns slipped his hand into the pocket of his green suit and he felt the gunmetal of a 25 caliber Beretta gun. He pulled it out underneath the Alabama sky and he called out William Maxwell's name and he shot him three times at close range. So he's dead. Yeah. So there was over 300 people here who didn't know what to do. They just bolted. It's said that Maxwell's last action before he died was dabbing his face with his handkerchief. 
that's what happened to Burns. Ernst, like he just became angry. So while he was in prison, he went to go get a lawyer. Do you know which lawyer he went to get? Tom Radney, the same one that had been used by William Maxwell originally. And Tom Radney, to his credit, was a very, very good uh, lawyer. And in fact, um, since Burns was a Vietnam veteran, Radney argued that it had brought back memories of being at war and pled insanity, a temporary insanity and things like that, and actually got him off for the murder conviction, even though he shot a man in broad daylight. But the man had to spend five weeks in the Bryce mental hospital to be evaluated but when after those five weeks were up he was a free man so that that's the crazy thing about all of this is that um i'd never heard about it but obviously do you know who harper lee is harper lee isn't that a writer she wrote to kill a mockingbird and she's an alabama treasure well harper lee heard about this story and she was writing a true crime novel about it before she died. Oh, no. Yeah, and so she was doing interviews and all that. And that's where a lot of this came up. Because she never finished the book. But there is like a four to five page manuscript that she was working on that was found. And after that, um, a lot of people around here started bringing up the fact that there was a voodoo preacher in town and a lot of the old rumors came flying back and people were talking about it because, you know, most people hadn't even thought about it since the 70s. That's cool. Right. And so my parents, I was at their house the other day and my mother, because I was talking about what you and I were doing, I was like, I, I can't decide what to choose. And she said, what if you do the voodoo preacher from downtown? And I was like, wait, what? And then she's like, yeah, yeah. He murdered a few people. Uh, like six of them. I was like, look, yeah, no, that would be right up my alley. Um, <laughs> but once again, he was never convicted for any murders. And there's a lot of people who say that Burns was in the wrong because Maxwell could have been innocent. But I'm not going to lie. That's a lot of co uh, coincidence. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Coincidences for one man. All of them could have been accidents. Not the girl under her car. Right. Like, that, that's the one that gets me. But then again, he already had a reputation, and you never know... You, you never know the full story behind anything. Did he get any money for... Well, no, because he died, like, shortly after. But. Right, but I would imagine that had he not died, him and his wife probably had a life insurance on her since it was his wife's child. But that is the story of the voodoo preacher from my hometown. So I didn't pick a local case because... I was looking and I was like, but where is my hometown really? And so then I just Googled like weird crimes, weird unsolved cases. And I found the smiley face killer. All right. So I've heard about the smiley face killer, like uh, news articles and all, but I don't really know anything about it. Yeah. It became super popular this year, early this year. There was an oxygen special about it. Which I'm sure is great, but I didn't watch it because I didn't have time. But most of my research comes from thelineup.com, which is where I found this case. Wikipedia, because, you know, Wikipedia. <laughs> a blog called The Great Unknown. A Rolling Stone article. And then Oxygen. So, 
I couldn't figure out exactly how I wanted to write this, so we're going to do it this way and see how it goes. All right, sounds good to me. So on April 7th, 1997, 50 days after he went missing, the body of 21-year-old Patrick McNeil was found in a body of water with the determination of accidental drowning. Patrick was last seen leaving a bar stumbling in Brooklyn and puking as he walked towards the subway to go home. He had been seen earlier in the night, puking in a bathroom. He had been partying with his friends, and he decided, oh, I have class in the morning, I need to go. However, there were a few questionable things that came up after the medical examiner announced his determination of accidental drowning, so a lot of people have different theories about it. But, you know, you got a drunk 21-year-old stumbling around near a river. Right. We're going to move on to 2009. So, October 8th, 2009, a 24-year-old William Hurley went missing after calling his fiancée to pick him up from a Boston Bruins game. When his fiancée arrived at the stadium to pick him up, he wasn't there. So she called him and was like, where the heck are you? And he yelled out and she heard someone respond to him with an address. So she drove to that address, but he wasn't there either. So she tried calling again, but his phone was dead. That's weird. Well, he had told her his phone was dying when she called him and was like, where the heck are you? And I'm assuming he was drinking because you're at, like, some kind of sports event. I just assume you're drinking, but, you know. Alright, I, I I feel that's a very fair assumption. What? Yeah, and, like, he was, he had previously been in the military. I think he was in Boston, possibly going back to school. I'm not fully sure, but. So, his body was found six days later upstream in the Charles River, close to where he told his fiance the second address he gave her. Um, so his death appeared um, more sinister. Um, he suffered blunt force trauma to the head, an eye socket, and behind his left leg. He also had a date break drug um, in his system, along with alcohol. The medical examiner... And there had been somebody on, like, on the other end when she called him, right? Well, so, she heard him yell out to, like, she's assuming a passerby or, hey, where are we? And she heard him yell, like, and he told her whatever address he said. Huh. Yeah, it's a weird, I don't really get this one. So, ultimately, the medical examiner deemed his death an undetermined drowning. Which, fair, like, he doesn't have a whole lot to go on. Like, yeah, it looks like he was beat up, but also he wasn't where he was supposed to be, which means he was probably wandering around the streets. Someone decided they didn't like how he looked and punched him in the face. Like, <laughs> the date rape drug is a little bit more alarming. Oh, yeah. No, that that's definitely, like, the most alarming part of all of it. Yeah. So, and that kind of comes up later on, too. But the other weird thing is, is like the date rape jug that is found in his system. It, I looked at, I look, was looking at different articles, and it's not commonly tested for in autopsies. It has to be requested, or they have to have suspicion of there being that drug for them to test for it. Well, then why did they test him? I'm not sure. I couldn't figure that one out. 
But it was 2009, so it might make more sense when I get to what the theory actually is. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. No, no, because I was questioning it as well, and I interrupted you all the time, so it's fine. <laughs> so, um, it was determined an undetermined drowning, but that wasn't good enough for a few retired New York Police Department detectives. So. Right, and where where did he drown at? Was it in New York? He was in Boston. Oh, so like people just heard about this case and didn't think it sounded right. Oh, it gets it gets even more interesting because there ends up being a lot of cases out in Wisconsin as well. What the hell? All right, we'll keep going. Exactly. So in 2008, these former detectives and a professor of criminal justice, which their names are all listed places, but I just didn't really want to add those in, uh, brought forth a theory known as the smiley face killer. This theory in total, from most of the articles that I saw, encompasses 45 accidental or undetermined drownings. There was one thing that said 200, but I don't think that's right. Because everywhere else I saw 45. And that that's a big discrepancy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 45. I don't know. I think it was a blog that said 200, and I was like, eh, no. <laughs> All right. Like, I mean, had it had one said 45 and one said 43, then that, I mean, it'd be worth mentioning because it's like uh, anywhere between these two because they're really close. But between 45 and 200, that's a huge number difference. So this theory starts with Patrick McNeil in 1997 and continues all the way up until 2009 with William Hurley. I'm not sure if they've added any more victims to this. He was just the most recent one that I had seen. Okay, so this theory came about as these detectives started linking drownings following similar patterns. All 45 victims were college-aged men who were well-off and usually athletic or popular in some way. All the victims had been out drinking or partying the night they had disappeared, which to me is where the theory starts to fall apart, but we'll continue. But the thing that gives the name to this theory is graffiti of a smiley face is found near the dump site or the retrieval site of each victim. I mean, that makes sense, but if I remember from watching train cars that are going a little bit too slow when I'm stopped outside of a train track, smiley faces are a very common thing to draw. Yeah, so that's brought up too. Um, so mostly, almost immediately after these retired officers um, announced this theory, <laughs> the FBI denounced it, saying in an official statement, the FBI did not find enough evidence to state that these drownings are related, but that the vast majority appear to be alcohol-related. From what I've seen, all of them are alcohol-related, but again, there's 45 victims, and I did not look them all up. Right. Which, I mean, also, that's also where date-rape drugs are normally put, is in alcohol. Yeah, and so that was the other weird thing, is that... So... One of the articles I was reading, it might have been the oxygen one, was talking about the date rape drug that was found, and it was like GBH or GHB or something like that. And it, um, it's not normally tested. So I think William Hurley was tested 
because either the detectives reached out and were like, hey, test for this, or the fiance had heard something and requested it be tested. Because normally it's not tested unless someone requests it. So a lot of these cases, the family started requesting that that drug be searched for. So then I also wonder, are there any chemicals in alcohol, in your body, and anything that you consume that as it decomposes, because you're decomposing, could it create that chemical composition of that date rape drug? If I remember correctly, no. Uh, like, uh, just just from working in a bar? I'm, I'm not a chemist, so I, I don't know. <laughs> right, no. You went to school for genetics. <laughs> yeah, not chemistry. But, like, no. Uh, GHB, if, if that's the one that you're talking about... Yeah, that's the one that they've brought up a few times. Right, like, I don't... I think that it's one of the things that, like, when you go in for a rape kit, or, like, if they suspect that someone's been raped, they test for. But it is not a traditional... Like, because really and truly, you can't do anything with GHB, like, to get high. So it's not one of those that, like, frees you up to do ambitions. It pretty much just kind of zombifies you and causes severe... Mem- Oh, so it's not like one that someone would take while they are partying because, oh, I want to feel loose. It's not like a muscle. Okay. Right. No, like, I mean, GHB, and normally you can't even remember the night before. So if something were to happen and this was a smiley face killer, and like, because obviously he would have other victims that he hadn't killed because nobody just starts out the gate killing. They worked their way up. Then there would probably be a lot of people who had been date raped just didn't didn't know it. Because a lot of times you just wake up feeling bad, but you can't remember anything from the night before, and it's like a super severe hangover. Ooh, that's not fun. No. Okay. As this theory became public, many people started looking into the um, possibility of it actually being a thing. And it... I love that you changed the word. Yeah, I gave up on that one. (laughs) It was noted that there was no way it could have been one person, as the drownings occurred across 11 states, and some overlap in, like, dates. So there's no way one person could have been at both places or whatnot. So the theory evolved into a gang of killers. So then they started saying, oh, well, you know, it's a gang of smiley face killers. Well, I'm not going to lie, like, 45 people for one person is a lot, but I would feel that if your gang's purpose was to officially set out to kill people like this and leave a smiley face behind, then you might could very easily get up to that number of 200 quickly. Yeah, but also think about, like, some of the serial killers, they've done some damage. And how many actually had a gang and not been able to get caught at all? Like, you're only as strong as your weakest link, and you're not going to have someone that's not, you know, going to say something to someone. True. And plus... So many of the cases... Oh, continue. Oh, I was about to say, plus, the more people you add in, the harder shit like that is to keep secret. Yeah, so like, 11 different states, how many people... I mean, I guess it could have been two, but like... Someone's going to slip up at some point. Especially for that many years. Right. I mean, and plus it would, 
Yeah, it would take a very, very complex duo of killers to constantly be going, well, if we kill two people on the same day around the same time, then they'll think, well, we couldn't have both been there. Like, I'm... It could be gang violence. I just don't think there's a smiley face killer gang. I think the gang violence wouldn't waste drugs and all on it. They would just take uh, all of, like, all their people and beat them. Yeah, but my thing is, is, like, these guys have been partying before, so was the killer the one that administered the drug, or did someone slip their drug and then they left? True. Uh, there's so many possibilities on this one. I know. So many of the cases that have been added to the theory come from what some call the hub of smiley face killers, which is La Crosse, Wisconsin. There have been at least seven accidental or undetermined drownings in this town, which is insane. How many? At least seven. But then I figured out why. All right. The Mississippi River runs only a half a mile away from a stretch of high traffic bars where a bunch of college students are often frequenting. Well, that does not sound like a safe combination. Nope. Because apparently there's a few colleges right around that area in Wisconsin. And having a river run a half a mile away from all of them partying, it's not a great idea. Yeah, that that's definitely a dangerous combination. Yeah. Yeah, but still, seven's a lot. Like, you would think they would do something. Yeah. I. But really and truly, what can you do at that point? Because they're doing it of their own free will. I Not the drowning part, but like the drinking, the partying. And I mean, even if you put up a fence, if they're like, let's take a swim in the Mississippi River, which is always a horrible idea because of how strong the currents can get in the Mississippi River. But, like, I, you can only do so much as an administrator or a police chief to stop that stuff. Well, and so, like, a lot of these are college-age men. So, like, how much of it is hazing? You know what? That's actually a very good question. Because, you know, uh, South Carolina, a few years ago, while we were at the University of South Carolina, had some problems with the teak house and hazing. Well, and Clemson's had issues as well. So, like, every school has some hazing issues, and these are college guys drinking. Like, Patrick McNeil was 21 and out partying before classes the next day. Yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> so, another thing many people like to bring up is that the smiley face graffiti near the dump or recovery site of the bodies. Um, so, one, the smiley faces aren't the same. And I'll find some pictures and we'll post them on the, on the Instagram but the smiley face pictures... Right, so like none of them are like a specific smiley face. They're each different, right? Yeah, they all vary. Ah, okay. Yeah, and then um, smiley faces are the most common graffiti seen anywhere. And then also the CDC at one point had stated that men between ages of 18 and 34, which are, you know, deemed college age, are most likely to binge drink. So we bring in this drinking problem again. So while many of the accidental or undetermined drownings, especially with so many in a single town, is horrible, 
I really find it hard to support this theory. I really think that while some of them could be gang violence, some of them could be murders, you know, whatever, I don't think they're necessarily connected. No, I, there may be like one or two connected to something besides alcohol, but I don't think it's a murderer. Like, I mean, maybe one of them, you know, like, I'm not saying that all of them weren't murders. They could have very well have been murdered. But I don't think that one person or like a group of people purposely set out with the intention of doing that exact murder. Especially not 45. Well, I mean, how many people are murdered in America every year? Because this is just 45 cases in how many years? Like, it started in 97, and the last one I talked about was 2009? Like, that's really not that many in comparison. So for them to pick out so specific ones, I just don't see how they are connected. I, I mean, have you seen pictures of any of the victims? I've seen a few. And, like, they are. They're normally white, college-age, nice-looking guys. Hmm. So maybe that's really the only connection that they look similar, but I mean, that's that's really that's not enough to say, oh, a serial killer. Well, yeah. So the theory is based on looks, alcohol, date rape, drug, and the smiley face. Well, I'm gonna be honest. I'm not sold on it. I'm not either, but it's so interesting, and I really should watch that Oxygen special. It came out in January, because maybe it would convince me of it. I mean, yeah. Um, I, do you know what conclusion they came into on that documentary? I think it was just them interviewing the um, detectives who came up with the theory. So I don't think it was actually a, like a decision. I think it was a this is what's out there because it became so popular and the FBI was like, uh, it's not really a thing. I don't know. It's still fascinating altogether. Well, and for it to be such a big deal 11 years after the theory was announced and I hadn't heard about it until when I Googled weird unsolved cases. Like, I I heard about it, but I didn't really read the article because I was going through the news feed and there was something... I guess it was two or three months back now, and I don't remember what it was, but it had a smiley face like on the sidewalk, and then it said, is there a smiley face killer? And I started to read it, but then like even the news article itself was talking about all the discrepancies between the accounts, and I was like, hey, yeah, probably not, and I'm not going to lie, I, I'm not fascinated by fake murders. Well, I was intrigued in there actually being this theory. And as I looked into more and more of the victims, I only talked about two, but I found one of the more recent ones from La Crosse, Wisconsin. And the mother was like, he was terrified of the water. I don't know why he would have been down there. And then I found out that it was a half a mile away from where they were drinking. And I was like, that's why he was down there. Right. I mean, that, that one right there definitely sounds more hazy to me. Yeah, like, that's my question is, you know, have they, I'm sure they've thought about all of this, but I don't know. I, sometimes when people get an idea in their head, it gets planted so deep that there is no uh, changing their mind. Well, maybe they know more. You know, sometimes they, sometimes they hide things from the public. 
They might. Right, and you know what? On that oxygen special, the detectives themselves may have seen a connection that we just haven't seen in the research that you've done. Right, maybe we should both watch that special now and <laughs> talk about it in the future. Record it as, we as we're watching it. <laughs> Do a live viewing. <laughs> Record our responses as we're going, ah. It's like a five-part documentary, but yeah, we should do that sometime. Oh yeah, I'm cool with that. And yours was neat. I liked your story. That's cool. Yeah, like I said, it came out of nowhere. Like, because I, I, I want to do a good story for our first episode of it. And when my mother's like, well, why don't you do the voodoo preacher from downtown? I was like, the what? Because <laughs> how often do your parents just look at you and calmly say, what about the killer voodoo preacher? Like, no one else hears that crap. That's true. That's cool. That's funny. I have to talk to your mom about that voodoo preacher next time I'm in town. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, her and my dad, uh, they watched all the documentaries. And one of our local men here that I grew up knowing, uh, Mr. E. Paul Jones, wrote a book on the subject. And... It's not a bad book. It, there's a lot of information. There's a lot of detail in the book. But it's very sporadic storytelling. So it kind of jumps around through the story. And I, could, I couldn't read all of it. I, I tried. Well, you know what? I think our first episode went well. I do too. So as I said, we will post some pictures on Instagram at Creepy Crime Podcast. And then we have a twitter yeah we've got one uh i just can't pull it up right now because i'm using my phone so we'll post it on instagram <laughs> sounds good I, I don't know how else to tell you we may have to tell you episode two <laughs> well we'll link it in the description either way yeah all right well until next time guys i've been creighton and this is Allie. all right bye Bye.